0: The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 25th. 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about a mystifying field goal attempt by the Packers, a 10th Super Bowl appearance for Tom Brady, and the Kansas City Chiefs run for a second straight NFL championship. We'll also go long on the life and the legacy of baseball legend Henry Aaron, who died last week at the age of 86. I'm in Washington, D.C. I am the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke, also in DC, Stefan Fatsis. he is the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Bad week for field goals.
0: Oh, it was, those were great games, man. All those field goals were awesome. Warmed my heart.
1: With us, from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, enemy of field goals, host of Slow Burn season three and six, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel.
2: Punch it in, have a good running back and just punch it in. That's right, that's what you need, a good running back.
1: LSU running backs, Clyde edwards helaire Daryl Williams, Leonard Fournette, all scored touchdowns, NFLSU, baby.
2: Wow. Yeah. I mean, in one national championship out of all of it. <laughs>
1: How many are you expecting them to win? Wow. All right.
3: Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix.
1: It's going to be a Bucks chief Super Bowl in Tampa on Sunday, February 7th. The first time a team has ever played a true home game. In the Super Bowl. LSU didn't make it. I don't know what what happened. Uh, The 43-year-old Tom Brady will be going for his seventh title, his first outside New England. 25-year-old Patrick Mahomes will be going for his second in a row. The Chiefs are hoping to be the first team to win back-to-back titles since the Patriots and Tom Brady in 04 and 05. Before we get to that, we got to say a few words about the Green Bay Packers. The NFC number one seed was playing at home on Sunday. They're at Lambeau Field. They're led by the NFL's likely MVP quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. After trailing 28 to 10 to Tampa Bay, the Packers had the ball. They had a chance to tie the game with just over two minutes left in the fourth quarter. But after three straight incompletions from the eight-yard line, Packers coach Matt Lafleur elected to kick a field goal. Making the score Bucks 31, Packers 26. You'll note that the Bucks in that scenario had more points than the Packers did. Uh Green Bay would never get the ball back after the game. All LaFleur would concede was anytime it doesn't work out, you always regret it. Joel, try not to belabor coaching decisions, because I feel like it takes away credit and blame from the players. They're the ones who really determine who wins and loses. And in this case, the Packers were probably gonna lose no matter what. Ben Baldwin's fourth down bot on Twitter said that even if Green Bay had converted that fourth and goal, they'd still have just a 24% chance of victory. So stipulating all that, but given the stakes and the situation and the quarterback, this was one of the most baffling and probably dumbest calls that I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, I just... When I think about this, I think about how hard it is to get to this point in the playoffs where a team is literally only two plays away from potentially tying the game that will determine a spot in the Super Bowl. And players, coaches, everybody that works in a franchise, you spend an inordinate amount of time, like some spend an offseason, some of their whole damn lives, trying to get to a point in the competitive, stakes-heavy football game where you can control your own destiny. Right. And the Packers were right there. It's like the sort of scenario you dream about if you've ever been part of a team sport. So the Packers have fourth and goal from the eight with maybe the most gifted quarterback of the last decade, the best red zone offense in NFL history this season, and they settle for a 26-yard field goal. And I mean, we, there's all sorts of reasons why this is dumb, right? Because to make that field goal not hurt them, it required the Packers to stop Tom Brady and the Bucks preferably in three downs. And then go back down the field and score another touchdown. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense any way you look at it, analytically or otherwise. And it's just reminiscent of the cowardice that Mike Vrabel and Mike Tomlin had shown in punting the ball away late in their playoff losses earlier in the year. So it's, that I guess what I always just come back to, it's so hard to get to this point in the season, in your career, and to figuratively punt, to say, well, get it back, boys. It really doesn't fit with the do or die nature of a one-game elimination playoff, right? You have to press your advantages while you have them. And I don't understand why more coaches don't feel the urgency in that moment. Like, what is it about coaches that makes the vast majority of them go conservative in a moment that calls for boldness? And even if it's not boldness... Isn't it just a matter of odds? Isn't it just a matter of probability,
0: Stefan? Oh, it's a matter of odds, probability, the lack of boldness and imagination. And all of those things tend to define a lot of coaches, particularly young coaches like Matt LaFleur, who's like 40-ish, has spent the last you know 15 or so years working his way up the ranks inside NFL organizations. And the most telling to me reflection on what happened from Lafleur in his post-game news conference was his, you know, defensiveness in saying, well, you know, we just didn't get it, and of course I regret it now. But then he said, we're always going to be process-driven here. And NFL coaches, too many of them, rely on this conceit that I know what I'm doing, there is only one way to do it. It's an arrogance. that. You know, this is the process and we are going to stick to it. When in fact, in this situation, all of those other factors that you mentioned the best red zone offense, the best quarterback of the last decade, not to mention the moment itself and expecting your best player to rise to it that's what didn't happen here. He didn't give Aaron Rodgers a chance to do something great and he deprived the fans at home in Green Bay and everyone watching on television of something exciting potentially happening. And that to me was the other lost thing here. It reflected the the rampant conservatism of NFL coaches that, you know, predates all these guys. But here it was in stark contrast in this moment. The downside risk was the same. If they didn't score the touchdown, they still would have been down a touchdown. They kicked the field goal, they're still down a touchdown. They chose the boring option in addition to the the conservative one.
1: Well, I think we should be clear here, this didn't actually reflect the conservatism of NFL coaches. It was more conservative. A guy, Rob Daniels, on Twitter, searching pro football reference, found that in the last 25-plus years, in this scenario, team down between four and eight points, fourth down in the red zone with between two and three minutes left in the fourth quarter. So that's like a pretty narrow set of circumstances, that that had actually happened 115 times and teams that attempted a field goal three times out of 115. So I don't think it's fair to say that, oh, Matt LaFleur is like conservative, like, other NFL coaches, and this is a problem with NFL coaches. I think conservatism is a problem with NFL coaches, but this was just beyond this was beyond any of that. I think he choked mm-hmm. in this moment. You don't necessarily think about coaches choking, but to talk about this as a process-oriented move,
2: this is a process that did not work. Let me ask you guys a question. Did you all think that? he knew something that we didn't in the moment because I was like, wait, as I like, I remember thinking, am I missing something here? Like, I'm like, what? <laughs> like he's making this decision. Is there some sort of like math or odds of probability that I'm not considering? Because I was just like, it was so flabbergasting. I just was screaming, what are you doing? Yeah.
1: The thing that surprised me actually was the reverse. I was surprised when uh, the fourth down bot thing came up on Twitter and said it was actually like a pretty close call but that doesn't take into account the context of this being Aaron Rodgers and the Packers offense. But I think the or, thing, or with the, or, or the
0: th- context, Josh, of Tom Brady being required to basically get one or maybe two first downs.
1: No, I mean it does. It does take into account that context. It takes into account time and and score and the fact that they could. Um, yeah, but it's
0: Tom Brady. Like
1: it know. is Tom Brady, right? It doesn't take into account the Rodgers and the Brady mm-hmm. of it. The reason I think that it's maybe a closer call than it might feel like intuitively is the fact that we as fans, and I think coaches too, overrate the value of a tie. Because, okay, let's say the best case scenario, I think, maybe not the absolute best case scenario, but the best case likely scenario for the Packers, if they score and if they get the two-point conversion, is that it goes to overtime where they then have a 50% chance of winning. It's, It's not like even if they had made it, they would have. They still wouldn't have been favorites to to win the game. But I think that the reason that the fourth down bot is wrong in this case and saying, "Oh, it's a ten, you know, ten percent versus nine percent, or whatever," is that you have to consider your your best case scenario of going for it, making it, and getting the two point conversion, and then you're like right back in the game. The best case scenario with the field goal is like as you guys have been saying, you still have to stop. Tampa and Tom Brady get the ball back and then go all the way down the field and score. Like you're just, you're giving yourself such a low ceiling at that point.
0: The the shocking thing to me, Joel, also was that that was also revealed in the postgame news conferences was Aaron Rodgers saying that on third down, when he tried to thread a ball to the goal line to score when he had an open field to the right uh pylon and a pot- possibly you know getting into the end zone or um even just getting it down to the two or three and having a better shot on fourth down he said that i thought maybe we were gonna have four chances to go meaning he tried to thread that ball in there thinking i'm gonna get a sh- another crack at it on fourth down didn't they discuss this like yeah. that shocked me that Rogers went out there on third down, not knowing what would happen if they didn't
2: succeed.
0: That's a complete failure of preparation and communication.
2: I guess I just have we we probably can just not fathom the amount of communication and things that they all have to hold in their head moment sure. by moment under this right, so but yeah, but that that was sort of surprising to me that they did not know or that Aaron did not have some sort of hint as to what might happen on fourth down. And you can see that reflected in his disappointment at the end, right? It came pouring out of him in a way that is really familiar. All of us that have watched football for a long time and you see quarterbacks at the end of their careers, they know that this moment comes around only so much. And to know that you literally left an opportunity out there on the field which is the way that Aaron Rodgers basically described it, is, you know, and he said it was gutting. Well, he also said that he might have called
0: a different play yeah. on third down right. had he known they weren't going to go for it on fourth down.
2: Didn't a
1: reporter ask him, "Could you have just gone out there and you know gone for it on fourth down?" I mean, that would have been a uh, fascinating. Thing that hypothetically would have happened, just yep. Rogers being insubordinate mm-hmm. and going out on the on the field. Uh, I wonder if like Lafleur would have tried to pretend that it had been his idea to go for it. I mean, that's kind of what we want as fans from Rogers in that moment. Like you want you want the story to be like the, you know I I convinced the coach and then we scored and. And, you know, what Rodgers was saying was, wasn't my decision. Like, I didn't, I didn't have any control over it.
0: Right, which points out the hierarchy of NFL teams. Even someone like Aaron Rodgers, either in the moment failed to or felt he didn't have the authority or his relationship with this new head coach didn't allow him to walk up to him and say, no, we've got to go for this now. Please put this on my back this is a moment that I live for. So there was something screwed up about all of that dynamic.
1: Rogers definitely would have gotten away with it if he had done that. Like, I don't think anyone would be mad at him or blame him. Uh, But I can also totally understand the fact that he didn't do it. It's not like, uh, you know, I I do think, Joel, that there is this, like, thing in my head, and I don't know if this is just, like, uh, fan fiction or something, but I'm like... I bet bet Peyton Manning would have just ignored the coach and would have just gone out there and called the
3: play.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, I was sort of surprised that Aaron Rodgers deferred to a guy who doesn't have his credibility in that moment, but that says a lot about sort of the militarism of football and the hierarchy system in the game, that even a dude at the peak of his powers like Aaron Rodgers thought that he had to defer to his much less accomplished, much less prominent guy, but I mean that that sort of to me encapsulates the entire relationship with Aaron Rodgers with the Packers this year, because man he has to i mean like he has to be hurt in a way that you can't quite get your arms around because like even let's let's just talk about the whole season, right like whereas the Bucks went all in on Brady this season, understanding that long term planning doesn't do much for the great players currently on your roster. they brought in Gronk. They bought in Leonard Fournette. They bought in Antonio Brown. They did all these things to press their advantages. Like, we've got Tom Brady. We should try to win a Super Bowl this year, right? They realized I don't have a lot of seasons left for a rebuild. The Packers, in a deep draft, took a project from Utah State to be Aaron Rodgers' successor in a year when everybody knew that the Packers were going to be a great team this year, right? And so that speaks a little bit to me to the pull that Aaron does or does not have within the organization. And I mean, just think about the ways in which they failed him on Sunday. You know, you've got one of his receivers dropped a pass in the end zone. You've got the disappointment at your coach for kicking a field goal down eight late. You got your opponent taking advantage of a glaring weakness at corner. You know, uh, poor Kevin King, who had one of the worst days that any NFL cornerback has had under that sort of spotlight. And it's just, you know, if you're Aaron Rodgers, you're just like, why is this all on me? You know, at this point in my career, like why, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why does it all depend on my excellence? And why didn't you help me to press the advantages we have this year? You guys let me down. And that's what I felt like when I was watching him, you know, playing, you know, psychologist from home. That's what I felt like. Oh, Aaron Rodgers is like, oh, you guys let me down.
1: Well, let's let's transition quickly to the AFC before we get too deep into this, because the one kind of overwhelming sensation that I have watching the Kansas City Chiefs, and this goes back a couple years now, is like, everyone in this organization and everything in this organization is like pulling in the right direction. Like, they have all of the talent that you wouldn't want or need to succeed in the NFL. And yet, their success is so much more than that. It's you know the underhanded pass to Travis Kelsey on the one-yard line. It's like all the stuff that they do with scheme and getting these players in positions to succeed. And it's a really beautiful thing to watch. They're a fun team to watch for neutral fans. And it was great to see Patrick Mahomes back, you know, on the field after making it through the concussion protocol. It was a very kind of good and fun and convincing performance by a team that's been good and fun and convincing for multiple years now.
0: Yeah, Patrick Mahomes was back on the field because he probably got through the concussion protocol and also probably took an injection of Toradol. To allow him to run because he was diagnosed with turf toe in the past week. So the you know the miracles of the NFL are often preceded by the miracles of modern medicine.
1: And Tyreek Hill is like the most fun player to watch, and also like an incredibly problematic figure. Right. Like I'm I'm not saying that the Chiefs are uh you know an unmitigated force for for good and sweetness and light, but no no, was no
0: no f- no. But what I was going to say <laughs> is that. What the Chiefs reflect to me is the flip side of what we saw at the end of the Green Bay game. It's it's a coach, Andy Reid, who empowers his players to do creative things and builds a scheme that makes it more fun for them. It was fun to see that shovel pass, right? That was really creative, hard to execute, requires tons of practice, and I bet the players love working on that because it's different. Contrast that with, well, we're down by eight, and if we kick a field goal, maybe we can stop them and we're going to rely on the defense. You know, there's a difference in approach that is really evident, I think. It's pretty stark when you watch Kansas City play. It starts with having amazing athletes like Patrick Mahomes, who could wind up one of the best quarterbacks of all time if he's not already. But – You take, you know, how you utilize that and what kind of freedom you give to the players to enjoy what they're doing in the field rather than feeling they're just
2: part of a process. Well, remember, I mean, just last week, it was the Chiefs that went forward on fourth and one. Um, you know, uh, on their end of the field and that late in that game against the Browns, which a play that shocked Tony Romo, right? Like, I mean, if you're talking about... And Joel Anderson. And Joel Anderson, right. If you're talking about, like, sort of the opposite of cowardice, like a team that's bold and empowers its players Uh and says, I have faith in you. We're going to do this and excite your guys in a key moment. That is what the Chiefs are. And, you know, I'm sort of ashamed to admit this, that I listen to Colin Cowherd every now and again and he mentioned something that I think is really interesting and sort of does ring true to me, that the Chiefs remind him of an NBA team, you know? And that, like, they just... Like, first of all, throughout the season, they just sort of toy with their opponents until they're roused from their slumber late in the game and kind of pull away. But the way that they move the ball and the way that they're able to get around and showcase their athletes, it does just remind me of basketball on turf. Like, there's so much more athletic, so much more free form. It just seems like a fun way of playing. And I... I don't know. The the best offenses I've seen in my life have been the 07 Patriots, the 98 Vikings, the 99 Rams, and maybe the 2013 Broncos with Peyton Manning. And all of those teams eventually ran into a defense that it couldn't solve, right? Like, even those Patriots with Randy Moss and Tom Brady got stopped by the Giants. I I struggle to think of who could stop these Chiefs, right? Like, if if the Chiefs... like, maybe you might stop them for a few drives, but it just seems like it's impossible to contain them over the course of an entire game.
1: So Eric Fisher, the left tackle for the Chiefs hurt his Achilles, and the Bucks really bothered Aaron Rodgers with the pass rush with Jason, Pierre-Paul, and Shaquille Barrett. Like, that's the formula here is getting pressure on Mahomes. I mean, the Saints played... Really strong defense against the Chiefs this year. They held Mahomes to like really low yards per attempt, and the Chiefs scored 32 points. I mean, the you know the way to beat the Chiefs is to hold them to 30 and win 35 to 30 or something like that. Um, before we go, I want to note and Pro Football Talk had this: Tom Brady is now three and one in the playoffs when he throws three interceptions. <laughs> he threw three <laughs> interceptions in a. Pick. The goat. He threw three <laughs> interceptions in the span of seven passes, all of which were his fault. Um, just the like, the Brady narrative just in that game, like in the first half, and especially on that last second touchdown pass when the Bucks went for it um, and were rewarded for it. And by the way, the Bills kicked field goals instead of going for it on fourth down in their game against the Chiefs. Anyway, you know the narrative on Brady in the first half, especially with that long touchdown right before halftime to Scotty Miller. I mean you know, for for all you want to make fun of him and say he's washed because he threw three interceptions, like, he does not look like Drew Brees. He does not look physically compromised mm-hmm. in any way. He looks, he throws the ball fast. His, you know, reads seem sharp when they're sharp. And I think this was just a case of him making some bad throws and the Packers being unable to capitalize it. But it didn't look, I mean, I'm curious for you guys' thoughts. It doesn't look to me like, to the extent that Brady had a bad game. It means like, He's not good anymore or he's not capable anymore. I mean, he's still a very good player.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's good enough. I mean definitely good enough. He's
1: definitely good enough.
2: Even if he didn't even like even if he wasn't great, something is going on here. I still don't look at him and say that's the best quarterback I've ever seen. But I mean, just put to put a pin on it, the game's greatest winner went to the franchise with the worst all time win loss record in NFL history. A team that hadn't made the playoffs since two thousand seven and took them to the Super Bowl in his first year. I mean
1: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: The thing that shocks me every time I watch the footage of Henry Aaron's record-breaking 715th home run on April 8th, 1974, is the two young guys, one in a blue sweater, the other in a maroon alligator shirt and tan jacket, both of them white, who run up to Aaron between second and third and pat him on the back. Aaron looks momentarily surprised, and he flicks out his right elbow to push away blue sweater and then his left elbow at tan jacket. Storming the field at sports events wasn't uncommon in the 70s, but in the case of Aaron's Homer, the context mattered. After he started closing in on Babe Ruth's Sacred Mark, Aaron received hundreds of thousands of letters. A lot of it was hate mail, racist screeds, and death threats. People said they'd shoot him from the stands, including on the very night he broke Ruth's record. And yet two fans were able to get on the field and literally touch him while he rounded the bases. Aaron told the crowd in Atlanta, I just thank God it's all over. Henry Aaron died late last week at the age of 86. We're going to devote some extra time on the show to talk about his life and his career, and also to read and listen to some writing about him. Maybe a good way to approach this, Josh, would be chronologically. So let's start at the beginning. Aaron was born in the segregated Deep South in Mobile, Alabama.
1: So Howard Bryant's obituary of Aaron for ESPN was excellent, And Howard also wrote a biography of Aaron. We're going to be hearing from him a little bit later in the show. But There were a couple of things from that obit that really uh, I wanted to pull out here. This actually starts even before Henry Aaron with his father. Um, Howard wrote about the fact that Henry Aaron's father worked at the Mobile Shipyard in Alabama during World War II when white workers rioted because African-Americans were being hired And he also wrote about how Henry Aaron's father built the family house with saved money and leftover planks of wood and nails he scavenged from vacant lots. This was, you know, a man and a family growing up in the Deep South at a time, and and Howard writes about this as well, where there's the kind of belief and expectation that nobody else in the world is gonna look out for us The government's not going to look out for us. We have to kind of do for ourselves and take care of ourselves. And the thing that happened that Aaron sort of talks about as being transformative in his life was Jackie Robinson getting the chance to play in the major leagues. And not only that, but Jackie Robinson coming to Mobile for a spring training game and Henry Aaron's in the crowd as a kid watching him listening to him and sort of seeing a vision of himself that he hadn't seen before. He had wanted to be a ball player and seeing Jackie Robinson get this chance was, I think, a very powerful and important moment in his life. And the thing that sort of um, is important to know and think about with Aaron is that he is this sort of bridge between the past and, you know, the present and future of baseball, in that he does play in the Negro Leagues for the Indianapolis Clowns for a very brief period of time, and is one of the last players, um, due to the longevity of his Major League career, was one of the last or the last Major League players to have that Negro leagues experience. And so, he is the sort of bridge figure Joel and someone who is like deeply familiar with the Negro leagues and that heritage before he ever plays in the majors.
2: Yeah, I thought a lot about his connection to the roots of, you know, the first black people playing in the major leagues, you know, right? Like, as you mentioned, it's something that comes up over and over again when you read the story of his life about that trip that Jackie Robinson made to Mobile, Alabama, which is still sort of random, too. I mean, obviously, Mobile held a different place in the American landscape in the 1940s as opposed to today. But just think about the miracle he is that he is raised in the Jim Crow South, Mobile, Alabama. And deciding he wants to play baseball. And making that happen in a time when there was no real clear path to professional baseball for a black man in America, there was no guarantee that just because he was great at it that he would get to do it. And as audacious and uh, unlikely as it is to make the majors today, like if you decide that you want to play baseball today, it's still a very hard path, right? But just imagine being a black teenager in Alabama in the 1940s and thinking that you could or should play baseball for a living. Like, just imagine that. And that ultimately his parents, raised in a time, in a place where black people, like, they barely could afford to have dreams of any kind, let alone something like that. And they didn't necessarily dissuade him from pursuing that. That's a miracle. Yeah, It's almost
0: like it could have just ended... In a conversation that he had with his parents when he was 17 years old, you know, he was playing for Sandlot semi-pro teams in Mobile when he was 15, playing with adult men. And he was approached, his family was approached um, with this offer to go to Indianapolis and play for the clowns. And you have to understand that the, the Negro Leagues at this point were a shell of what they were. The Clowns were a barnstorming team for the most part. They played in what was left of the Negro American League. This was not the established Negro Leagues. There were The best players had already been siphoned off and were playing either in the majors or in the affiliated minor leagues. His parents, I think, didn't want him to go. And it was a struggle. Aaron did right. not like school, he,
2: he had said. He skipped it. He skipped school. Dropped yeah, yeah.
0: he skipped senior year. You didn't have to go to senior year in Mobile back then. But they let him go. They, they put him on a train with a duffel bag, and there's this incredible photo of Aaron standing at the train station ready to leave to go to Indianapolis. His ability was so clear from such a young age, though, that – if anyone was gonna make it on ability, it was gonna be Henry Aaron. He he when he shows up in Indianapolis, he still batted with his left hand on top of his right hand backwards and still was raking these semi-pro adults in Mobile. And a coach in Indianapolis makes him switch to a conventional grip on the bat he dominates this league. He's He just turned 18 when he gets to Indianapolis. He dominates the league. He is leading in multiple categories through the first two months of the season. And the New York Giants and the Boston Braves scouts have him on their radar and try to sign him. The Giants didn't for like want of a few thousand dollars and could have ended up with Hank Aarons and Willie Mays in their outfield. So the Braves pay $10,000 to the Clowns and they send him to Eau Claire, Wisconsin to one of their minor league teams.
1: The thing that's so interesting about his early career is the way in which he bounces between the Deep South and the North, how he goes from Mobile to Indianapolis. He goes to Wisconsin. Then he goes to the South Atlantic League. Then he goes to Milwaukee. He
0: integrates the South Atlantic League in Jacksonville. He's one of three or four players on the team that integrates that
1: league. And talk from the stands about um, how they're gonna you know feed black players to the alligators and and then he goes to Milwaukee and just thinking about him like part of this you know making it to the major leagues, making it as a big time baseball player, there must be in him this sense of escape or improving his his life and his family's life, and just to keep getting thrown you know, you know, back in to this sort of, like, maelstrom where he's not respected or appreciated, that must have been incredibly challenging and, and tormenting. And Stefan, you mentioned his talent being so obvious. I mean, he's kind of the player of the year in all of these minor leagues that he is in. And yet, you also mentioned that the Giants don't want him because of a couple thousand dollars. And a thing that's so telling to me, Joel, about the integration of the majors in these early years is just how so many of these franchises, they must have known how much talent. These people aren't idiots. They must have known how much talent there was in black baseball. They must have known that having good players means that you'll have a good team and be successful. And yet prejudice, racism was more important to them Than
0: winning, And even more than that, and let me just jump in here for a second, even more than that, having black talent on your team would have increased their gates. Baseball teams weren't selling out stadiums in the 1940s and 1950s. Black fans wanted to come and watch black players. So they denied themselves. Well, maybe
1: that was part of it, that they just didn't want black, they didn't want black fans, even if they were paying black
0: fans. Right, even if they could make more money.
2: Right. I mean, I guess the thing is, is, and that's something that we know and that we've lived through even more recently here is that racism doesn't make any sense. Yep. And I mean, even if you just break it down to a very base level, I mean, segregated schools meant that the government had to build two sets of schools. Now, one set was inferior, right? But, you know, it, (laughs) America is willing to embrace idiocy to keep black people apart. And so one thing that I thought about, and Hank Aaron talked about this, is that when Those first black players got together, man, and they knew. They knew that, like, they were, you know, under a microscope and that they had to succeed. And they had to succeed under these, like, really difficult circumstances. You know, he talked about, you know, sitting in Jackie Robinson's hotel room. And, like, talking with Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, Junior Gilliam, and Joe Black. And they talked about what to do if a fight broke out on the field, if a pitcher threw at them, if somebody called them the N-word, right? And just, like, as great as they were, as much talent as these black players had, I also wonder what life would have been like if they had just been able to play baseball. You know what I mean? Like, if they did Mm -hmm. not—if, like, there weren't all these obstacles— Placed in front of them, and people, you know, denying them opportunities, and when they're afforded these opportunities, trying to make life difficult for them, like, what would it have been if Henry Aaron had just been able to focus on his craft and not be a pioneer, right?
1: It's hard to imagine him being any better than than he was, but I think you're right that it's uh, that it's possible. And and it's you know looking looking at these numbers, Stefan. I think we should we should talk about Aaron, the player, for a bit before you know we get too far into the conversation. Career batting average of .305, two time National League batting champion, MVP. In 1957, all star in every season except his first and last all time. This, this is from the New York Times obituary that I'm reading here. Aaron, number one in total bases ever, number one in RBIs ever, number three in hits ever. And then we obviously know about the, the home run total.
0: He played 23 seasons. He was almost never injured. You could take away all of Hank Aaron's home runs and he'd still have 3,000 hits. Babe Ruth could have slugged. Like 250 more home runs, and he still wouldn't have had as many total bases as Henry Aaron. And yet, Aaron was denigrated for his longevity. Oh, he did all of this with more at bats. Oh, he wasn't as flashy as Mays. Oh, he wasn't as charismatic as Mickey Mantle. The numbers that Henry Aaron posted. And the fact that he was able to play as long as he did at that high level, it was like 45 home runs year after year after year. He never hit 50 in a season. Those are testaments to his greatness. They don't diminish his greatness.
1: The other thing that I found amazing is he only had one three home run game ever in his career. He was not somebody who who wowed you, like, on a day-to-day basis, even, necessarily. He was somebody who, to appreciate him, you had to watch him every day. And the contrast with Willie Mays is really interesting. And they were often, like, pitted against each other as, like, Mays being the more kind of fun and flashy and standout sort of player, and Aaron kind of being... It's not even just that Aaron was denigrated. I, I think during his career, and this is written about in a lot of these pieces, he just wasn't even really talked about at all or even noticed or, or noted. Um, but when he was talked about, it was just sort of like, oh, he like in, in the way that, that black athletes are so often insulted, it looks like he's just gliding out there. He's not even trying. Right. He looks slow. Mm-hmm. And like, what is what is even...
2: They called him he, step and fetch Like his own manager called him step and fetch it, which he said was a reference to his gait, right? Like, the way that he carried himself, but, I mean, I mean...
1: But imagine Joel, like, denigrating the effort and work ethic of a guy who never misses a game and is great year after year, and it was only with his approach to Ruth's record that, oh, let's you know, he starts making magazine covers and people start paying attention to him, this being in the 70s after he's won an mvp after he's had this long and incredibly distinguished career when people kind of step back and be like oh henry aaron yeah i guess that guy was pretty good
2: right you know what's interesting too and this is probably a terrible analogy and i had enough time to think of something better and i didn't and i apologize (laughs) in advance but um i think of it in the way that evander holyfield is remembered in comparison to mike tyson Mike Tyson, somebody who had these, you know, was dynamic, had these, you know, amazing peaks and sort of flamed out really quickly, whereas Evander Holyfield was a a dominant heavyweight boxer, beat Mike Tyson twice, head to head, and still isn't regarded in quite the same way as Mike Tyson, you know, when when you look back at it. But another thing that sort of comes to mind to me, like having read, you know, all this material about Hank Aaron, is that he had to do all this without any of the technology or training that athletes had today, right? Like, Hank Aaron couldn't rely on video or film of opposing pitchers, right? Like, he couldn't study in that way. So, so much of it is recall and timing and his own, like, dedication to the craft. He talked one time about, you know, his mental preparation as a a process of elimination. So, he said, suppose a pitcher has three good pitchers, a fastball, a curve, and a slider. What I do after a lot of consideration and analyzing and studying is to eliminate two of those pitchers, since it's impossible against a good pitcher to keep all three possibilities on my mind at the plate. Like he's making this sound like this is just like simple arithmetic, but this is actually very complicated strategy that he was able to basically come up on his own with very little help. And so, I mean, obviously all athletes of his time had to play under those same circumstances, but it speaks to his mind, and his knowledge of the game, which is not something that I actually hear a lot about, um, even up to this. Like, you you hear about him as just, like, this steady sort of automaton of a player, but you don't think of him as just, like, this analytical beast, which is what he was. Like, he's a guy that had seen every pitch, knew how to break it down in a way that not many others had, and, like, to me, that's just sort of incredible.
0: Yeah, publisher wanted Ted Williams to write a book titled The Science of Hitting. I don't think Henry Aaron wrote a similar book about the techniques and the, the the technicalities of being as great as he was. So he came up with his own ways and he just didn't share them. I mean, part of this is personality too, right? It's like part of it was this is who Henry Aaron was. He wearied of these comparisons with Mays. He wearied of being told that he didn't look like he was trying hard. I read one anecdote about how in his very first um, spring training with the Braves – in 1954 um he was told by coaches by a coach at least at least make it look like you're trying harder out there and aaron later reflected that his father had always told him no you don't try harder than you need to try you do what you do to get it done um his approach was was that so there was no you know even as he was being sort of compared unfavorably in that regard to Willie Mays. And he was. I mean, here's, a, here's an excerpt from a piece that George Plimpton wrote in Sports Illustrated after the 715th Homer, in which he, he's describing Aaron's approach. And he says, there's nothing in Aaron's approach to the play to suggest such an intensity of purpose. His stride is slow and lackadaisical. He was called snowshoes for a time by his teammates for the way he sort of pushes himself along. Um, he steps into the box. Even here, there is no indication of the kinetic possibility, none of the ferocious tamping of his spikes to get a good toehold that one remembers of Willie Mays, say, or the quick switching of his bat back and forth as he waits.
1: The thing that Aaron is always credited for is his quick wrists, his ability to you know, wait on the ball. Like that is the key.
0: And he had a big ass hitting. and big legs too. Those are also credited.
1: The key to hitting is being able to recognize what the pitches are. Joel, you mentioned that and to wait and see what the, you know, we're we're talking about milliseconds here. And so somebody who is able to, to wait and then snap their wrists and turn on the ball, like Aaron did is um, a very special player. But um, when I think about a, a player who's, I think in his case, rightfully credited for having that attribute, that's something that's like insider sort of baseball knowledge. It's not something that is particularly showy. It's not something that um, is remarkable physically to look at. It's a testament to skill and like a in a in a skill sort of game. And it's something that might allow you to pile up hit after hit and just win these like one-on-one battles every day with pitchers. But it's not, you know, it's, it's not something that just on an individual kind of basis, or when you're like looking at an individual at bat, you're going to be like, that is the most remarkable baseball player I've ever seen, even if in reality, he, he so often was. All right, let's take a pause there and we will come back momentarily talking about the record-breaking home run, number 715.
0: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
4: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
5: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
4: Play for free at
0: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by
4: law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about new Detroit Lions head coach Dan Campbell's instantly legendary press conference rant, in which he suggested that his team resort to cannibalism Not sure what I'm talking about? Curious to hear more? To hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup
3: plus. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. Marvelous moment for baseball! What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia! What a marvelous moment for the country and the world! A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol.
0: That was Vin Scully with the call of Aaron's seven fifteen. Um, and what's striking, of course, is that Scully chooses to note Aaron's race. There's a consciousness there of what Aaron went through. The letters that he had received had gotten publicity, the struggle that he had faced in not just 1974 at the beginning of the season when he hit the homer, but pretty much all through the 73 season when he started to approach 700, and even in 72 when it was clear that Aaron was going to break this record had been national news.
1: This was an enormous moment in America, in American history, and it was treated as such. Um, and the fact that Aaron had ended the previous season on 7 one shy of Babe Ruth's record, just added months upon months of kind of buildup and suspense to this moment. And it also gave kind of the the country an opportunity to think about how it felt about a black man beating Babe Ruth's record and numbers are more important in baseball than any other sport. And this was the most hallowed number in a sport where numbers are most important. This was also the biggest sport in America for um, decades. And so it's hard to overstate how significant this was. And a lot has been talked you know said recently about the letters that Hank Aaron received hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them and it was publicized in 1973 that Aaron was getting hate mail and after that happened the letters reportedly shifted to being 99 to 1 in favor of Hank Aaron but in a piece that Henry Grabar wrote for Slate last week in which he talked to the woman who was tasked with answering or answering opening Henry Aaron's mail. It was the hate mail that Henry Aaron kept and that stood out to him. And Joel, if a lot of people are telling you that they're happy for your accomplishment and that they love you, and then some number of other people are saying that they want to kill you and want to kill your family and saying the most heinous and awful things about you when you've done absolutely nothing wrong, quite the opposite, when all you've done is be excellent, the most excellent that's ever done this thing that's so important to America and Americans, of course, that's going to be the stuff that sticks with you and that you remember. And I don't want to, and also just like 99 to 1, since he was getting so many letters, the like (laughs) denominator there is huge. He was getting a ton of this horrible mail, even if it was Um, you know, outweighed in terms of volume by the positive messages.
2: Yeah, even if the the breakdown is 99 to 1, that's still a lot of people. Like, that 1% can make your life hell. So I read this profile of him in Sports Illustrated in 1992, and it sounded like he had something akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. You know what I mean? That, like, you know, his bodyguard, who was an Atlanta police major, a guy named Calvin Wardlaw, said, even now— assassination is always in the back of his mind. Now this is in 1992, right? There's always that possibility someone will try to make a name at this late date. And I think that's just profoundly sad to me. And it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about like what kind of player would Henry Aaron have been if he did not have to bear this burden of racism and like um that like as great as he is, we don't know what was left on the table because he talks all the time and it it actually is sort of and I know we're going to talk about like the way that his dignity keeps coming up over and over again and his grace. But he was actually very open about how damaging that year was to him. And he said in that same article in Sports Illustrated, it should have been the happiest time of my life, the best year. But it was the worst year. It was hell. So many bad things happened, things I'm still trying to get over and maybe never will, things I know I'll never forget I don't want to forget. And that is just profoundly sad to me that what should have been the high point of a long and distinguished career ended up becoming a nightmare for him.
1: Let's listen to a clip now. So we asked uh, Sandy Tolan, the writer, um, the author of the book Me and Hank, A Boy and His Hero 25 Years Later, to read an excerpt from his book. And what you'll hear now is um, a part of the book where Sandy – is meeting with uh, Henry Aaron's daughter, Gail. And they're looking through a scrapbook that Sandy Tolan made of Henry Aaron, his childhood hero. And they're looking through the photos of these just remarkable moments in Henry Aaron's life and career. So here is uh, Sandy Tolan.
3: There's her father in a broad smile of relief after 7.15. We can see the back of his mother's head, her arms flung around Hank, squeezing him tight. Looks like a picture of a proud mother congratulating her son. It isn't. See how she's holding him? She was hugging him, Gail says. He's glad it's over. She has something else on her mind. This is where the right around the time that the cannon went off? I ask. Yes. While he rounded the bases, there was a cannon that went off in the outfield. My grandmother thought it was a gun. She thought somebody was shooting at Daddy. And she's holding him like that because she's saying, if they're gonna kill him, we're going to go down together. She was going to go down with him. I think about this. At the moment, Hank Aaron established the greatest record in sports. He didn't celebrate. His mom didn't celebrate. And his daughter, Gail, didn't celebrate. She couldn't even be there. Instead, Gail says, I was with the FBI. She was a student at Fisk University in Nashville. For two years, she had been under the FBI's protective surveillance after callers threatened to kidnap her if her father didn't quit the chase.
0: Whew. Yeah. It is so profoundly saddening and also not at all surprising in America. It was this toxic combination of a black man breaking not just a record, but this mythic record. You know, Babe Ruth was uh, a caricature. You know, he was grafted onto American consciousness, this this round, fun-loving, dominant athlete. Um, he stood for everything. You know, when Roger Maris broke Ruth's single season record of 60 homers in 1961, when he hit 61, you know, Maris's hair fell out because of the stress. Um, so, Ruth has at the start this standing in american mythology that is above everything else and then you graft onto it the fact that a black man from the deep south as vin scully said was about to shatter the last big record that ruth held you know aaron talks about it this duality in his retirement he talked to bill roden of the new york times in 1994 the 20th anniversary of 715 And Roden wrote, Aaron said that it wasn't just the breaking of Ruth's record that touched off the venomous outpouring. Rather, the hatred was a delayed reaction to the onslaught against black athletes who began to dominate baseball during the mid-1960s, precisely at the time when the game needed an infusion of fresh blood. Quote, we changed the face of baseball, said Aaron referring to players such as Billy Williams, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, Bob Gibson, Willie McCovey, and Lou Brock. They don't want people to know that, he said, referring to the owners, writers, and others charged with interpreting baseball history. They want people to think that Babe Ruth was the man who changed the game. He hit the home runs. He had the big belly. He trotted around the bases, and he was the one. And then he says, April 8th, 1974 really led up to turning me off on baseball. It really made me see for the first time a clear picture of what this country is about. My kids had to live like they were in prison because of kidnap threats. And I had to live like a pig in a slaughter camp. I had to duck. I had to go out the back door of the ballparks. I had to have a police escort with me all the time. I was getting threatening letters every single day. All of these things have put a bad taste in my mouth, and it
2: won't go away. They
0: carved a piece of my heart away.
2: Damn. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's devastating. And, you know, I, I think that, like, it, there's a lot of talk about, like, what the the home run chase did to him. But I also think that he's right in that there was a delayed buildup, um, th- you know, this racial backlash. To the black players taking over the game,
0: and he also he also doesn't mention Ali and Jim Brown and
2: Bill Russell. Yeah, and I mean, this, like think about like the accumulation of all these slights over the course of your life, like integrating the Sally League or the South Atlantic League, playing in all these towns, dealing with all these racist taunts, like just the life that he had to live. And remember. The Braves when they moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta, and this is what, this is another. I'm just always shocked that people keep talking about his dignity and grace because actually, Hank Aaron was very upfront with like the racism that he dealt with. It's normally this is these are the sorts of traits that normally antagonize white people or racist white fans, and you don't get tagged as like dignified or gracious. But he was fairly upfront about it. So when you think about when they were moving the franchise from Milwaukee to Atlanta, they had to convince Hank Aaron that this was something that was worth his while. They brought out the president of the local NAACP. They brought out Whitney Young, who is the president of the National Urban League. They brought out Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King had to convince Hank Aaron, look, playing baseball is something that you can do that can help us with changing, uh, you know, the, the landscape down here in the Deep South. And so, like, I, I'm just, like, I'm I'm just thinking about, like, you acute you, all that stuff, like, all the things that he had to deal with, and he was still skeptical of his native land, his homeland, the Deep South. And, yeah, like, it's no wonder he got to the end of his life, and he's like, I did not get a chance to enjoy much of that.
1: So, he is an ambitious guy, and he had an ego, and he wanted this record. Mm-hmm. He also didn't want the record. I mean, he didn't want all of the... Um, pain and misery that came with the record. But everything that we've talked about in terms of him not getting his due, the comparisons with Maze and Mantle and him kind of being seen as a lesser, less entertaining figure. And like he's piling up these numbers and this is the one number that if he gets it, they'll have to respect me. There's no way that you can um, get this record and not be the greatest. And then he gets there and when he does get it, he is treated the way that he's treated. It's a great kind of tragedy. And with time, his story has been sort of rewritten, or the past has been rewritten, and the more kind of in recent decades, Joel, you mentioned it, about how he's praised for his grace and his dignity. And a lot of it is, you know, similar to the way that Martin Luther King has talked about, mm-hmm. where the, pe- the people or the kinds of people who would have been harshly critical or worse of him during his life now look at him as a sort of paragon. And like, why isn't everyone like this guy? Why isn't everyone so, you know, graceful and dignified? And they trot out the quotes, even though it wasn't like that during his lifetime. But Stefan... You do get the sense, even with that really bracing quote from the Rodin piece, and I'm not I'm not just saying this because, you know, you want there to be a happy ending or you want things to be nice, but you do get the sense, and maybe we'll we'll hear this from Howard Bryant in a minute, that Aaron actually did find some peace and contentment in his life towards the end.
0: I think that does sound right. And based on what Howard reported and Howard kept up a relationship with Aaron for more than a decade, right up until the time of his death after he wrote his uh, biography of Aaron. and But it was always a struggle for him. He kind of rejected baseball. He worked in the game for you know more than a decade, I think, after his retirement. He had a bunch of businesses. He was very successful. He never lacked for anything. But he – felt that every, everything he did for baseball or around baseball was to an end. It wasn't because he had some fondness for the sport itself. It was a way to capitalize on his legacy, which he never felt matched the reality. And that was something that Howard writes about in the book and in the ESPN piece, the sort of tug between the legend that was created around Hank Aaron and the person, Henry Aaron, who he was. They never were the same thing. And that troubled him for many years. Um, It was, you know, Howard writes that in, in the book that it wasn't supposed to be difficult terrain. He was supposed to be like Reggie or Ruth, Ted Williams and John Wayne where the person and the legend meshed so seamlessly that the individual became the myth. And he never got to enjoy that or experience that. And I think it's because of what he went through during his career and the recognition that on the one hand, all of these fans wanted to idolize 715 and then 755, but underneath all of that was what he went through to get there.
1: So let's listen to Howard Bryant reading an excerpt from his biography of Aaron.
0: And this is from the end of Howard's book. It's set in 2007, where Aaron goes to Milwaukee for the 50th anniversary of the Milwaukee Braves-only championship. And Howard talks about how only 13 players were still alive, how Aaron had survived it all, how there was a a trail network in Milwaukee named for him. And there's a statue for him at Eau Claire And there are streets named for him in Mobile and Atlanta and parks. And this is sort of how Aaron has now sort of come to terms with all of that.
5: At a safe remove when there were no more points to prove, no more misunderstandings to correct, no more slights to solve, the competitions ended and the deeds could finally speak for themselves. Henry Aaron lowered his guard and allowed the warmth of the sun of his life to bathe his face. Not too long ago, We went away for 15 days on a cruise to the Panama Canal, he said. I had been on cruises before, but never on the water for that long a time. I remember when the boat was in the canal in that narrow space. I looked out at the blue ocean and saw the birds swoop down into the water and then settle onto the land. And then I understood how much I wanted to be like them, free. I leaned over to my wife and I told her, that it was at that very moment that I finally felt like them. No one was asking me about baseball. The people that were around us weren't interested in me because I played baseball. I was as free as a bird. And I told my wife, I said, I've never felt this free in my life. <sighs> yeah, man, that's
2: just, I mean, I, that's beautiful. If that's the place that he got to. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess there's... <sighs> The thing about Henry Aaron, and I just, first of all, I just think about, man, what a waste. Like, this is the last year of his life, and he had to spend it like this and this bullshit. And Howard Bryan actually makes this point in one of the stories he wrote about Hank Aaron over the weekend about how he wanted, you know, people like Henry Aaron to outlive the Trump presidency so that they could see the very end of it. But for me, this is really personal because, you know, my parents are basically of the same generation as Henry Aaron. And I really fret about this loss of generation of Black Americans, particularly those from the old Jim Crow South. Um, they know things about this country that many of us have never known or tried to forget. And they're a useful check on the myths that Americans tell themselves about this country, right? You know, Hank Aaron said, you know, years after his career ended, he told a reporter that he occasionally looked through that hate mail that we talk about all the time, and you know, that he received during the home run chase and after. And he said— I read the letters because they remind me not to be surprised or hurt. They remind me what people are really like. And I think that's the thing that I will take the,
5: uh,
2: you know, Hank Aaron's legacy. Beyond his greatness, he was willing to tell America the truth about itself. And he wasn't willing to smile and be happy just for the sake of it. That he was willing to say, hey, look, man, these are your people. This is what you are doing to me. You hurt me. And I didn't get my just reward. And I just think that's profoundly sad. And if he did feel free at the end, then God bless him because that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, very well said. And when Aaron said to Bill Roden in 1994, we changed the face of baseball. A lot of the men whose names he mentioned are not with us anymore. Um, Bob Gibson and Lou Brock just died in 2020. It's a whole generation of Black baseball players and American heroes from a particular era, um, the one that you described so well, Joel. And there was, you know, one guy, Billy Williams, who's from Alabama, who's been interviewed about Aaron this past week, who is still alive. And the other guy in that, you know, sentence that Aaron read, who's still alive is Willie Mace. And so it's a really dwindling number of these guys. And so we should be listening to the ones who are still alive while they're still here.
0: And we should be reading the words of Henry Aaron and his contemporaries about what it was like.
1: Thank you to Sandy Tolan and Howard Bryant for reading from their books for us. We will have links to those books and a whole bunch of stories on our show page at slate.com slash hangup.
3: We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change
5: fighting for what we deserve.
2: Search for amazing sports stories
5: wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: And now it is time for afterballs, and a name that we have not mentioned yet in relation to Henry Aaron is Tommy Aaron. That was Henry Aaron's younger brother. He hit 13 home runs in a major league career of his own, uh, giving Henry and Tommy a combined 768, the record uh, for brothers in the major leagues. Um, Tommy Aaron died at the age of 45 of leukemia, and he had actually been a manager in the minor leagues. He was the first black manager in the International League for the Richmond Braves, and won Richmond's first International League pennant in 1978. So he was a successful manager. Joel, when I was looking at Tommy Aaron's biography, and there's not that much about him if you just kind of scrape the surface of uh, Google, just made me think of, you know, it's a miracle that Hank Aaron made it to the major leagues. But he wasn't the only one in his family. Like, think of how remarkable it is that a pair of brothers made it to the majors. So let's remember Tommy Aaron.
2: That's even more incredible. I mean, it's not like their father was a professional baseball player. You know, like, this isn't Dale Curry and Steph Curry. I mean, this is the dad that worked at a lumber yard, essentially, right? So, um, yeah, that's that's incredible, man.
1: Salute Tommy Aaron. Stefan, what's your Tommy Aaron?
0: On May 27, 1952, Sid Pollock, the owner of the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro American League, laid out the terms of a proposed sale of 18-year-old Henry Aaron to the Boston Braves. I feel this youngster is another Ted Williams in the hitting department, he wrote to a Braves executive named John Mullen. Pollock asked for 10 grand, detailed a payment schedule, and noted Aaron's military draft status. He is worth waiting two years for should he be called into the service. Then in the last paragraph, he mentioned another player. On pitcher Leander Tuggerson, if possible, would like to see you bring him into Milwaukee to pitch one game for this club. Pollock said he thought Tuggerson could be a regular starter at Boston's top farm team, but if he fails to win and go the full route, return him to us with transportation-only expense involved. The Braves didn't appear to take up Pollock on the offer, and Leander Tuggerson never made it to the big leagues. But he wasn't just a footnote to Hank Aaron's immortality. Tuggerson was a 6'1 right-hander from Florence Villa, Florida. He had joined the Clowns in 1950 and, in a postseason barnstorming game, beat Don Newcomb and the Brooklyn Dodgers. His older brother, Jim, a 6'4 righty, joined him on the Clowns in 1951. Big Jim went 10-4, Leander, whose nickname was Schoolboy, went 15-4, including a no-hitter with 16 strikeouts. After the season, Leander was sold to the Chicago White Sox and sent to Colorado Springs. But he didn't stick, and he returned to the Clowns. Big Jim roomed with the young Aaron, both pitchers dominated, and wanted to play affiliated baseball and get a shot at the majors. On April 1st, 1953, Jim and Leander reported for spring training with the Hot Springs Bathers of the Class C Cotton States League. The league had eight teams, one in Louisiana, three in Arkansas, including Hot Springs, and four in Mississippi. Like the majors, the minors, as a rule, were now prohibited from barring black players. Not surprisingly, given its name, the Cotton States League, though, hadn't integrated. But the white owner of the bathers needed pitching help, and he knew the Tuggersons would attract black fans, which was a common phenomenon after integration. We know our place in the South because we are from the South, Jim said after the Tuggersons joined the team. All we want is an opportunity to prove our ability as baseball players. But the owner of the Jackson, Mississippi team said the league, quote, is hardly ready for Negro players, end quote. Mississippi's attorney general said that, quote, mixed white Negro athletic contests would violate public policy in his state, a state that outlawed interracial marriage and integrated schools. Within a week, club owners voted to expel Hot Springs from the league entirely. Minor League Baseball overturned the vote, and the league replied that it would disband if the Tuggersons played. So the pitchers agreed to be loaned out to a Class D team in Knoxville, Tennessee. But they didn't hide their anger. Are we fit to work in your homes and fields only? The brothers wrote in a statement. We can help elect you when it's time for voting. When you were young, was it fair for a Negro maid to raise you? Now we're the forgotten ones. You haven't been fair to us in the South. We don't want to, as Negroes, stay with you or eat with you. All we want to do is play baseball for a living. This, too, is a job. We are still working for you. A few weeks later, short of pitchers and still angry, the owner of the Hot Springs Bathers recalled Jim. A capacity crowd of 1,500 filled the stadium in Hot Springs. But as Jim was warming up, the team got a telegram from the league president ordering the umpire to declare a forfeit. The crowd booed the ruling and cheered Jim, but the team caved and sent him back to Knoxville. I'm not bitter, but I think he did the wrong thing in making Hot Springs forfeit that game, Jim said afterward. I hope I land in the majors someday. I want to be in a league where they will let me play ball. Against inferior talent in the D-League, Jim won 29 games and struck out 286 batters. He also bravely sued the Cotton States League in federal court, arguing that the league breached his contract and denied his civil rights by preventing him from working. A federal judge dismissed the civil rights action, and Jim dropped the case after the team sold his contract to Dallas of the AA Texas League. Jim didn't make the majors, but he pitched through the end of the 50s, reaching as high as AAA. After baseball, he became the second African-American police officer in Winter Haven, Florida, and coached youth baseball there. He died of a heart attack in 1983. There's a baseball field named for him there. Hot Springs wound up integrating the Cotton States League in 1954, but the league folded a year later. As for Leander Tuggerson, he pitched in just 10 games in Knoxville before heading home with arm trouble that ended his career. An excellent Saber biography of Jim Tuggerson, written by my friend Peter Morris, says that not much is known about Leander's post-baseball life. I did find a story about his death. He was electrocuted while moving a TV antenna from a roof in Florida in 1965. He was just 37 years old. Hank Aaron made it. Leander Tuggerson didn't. But they shared more than space in a letter from one white baseball executive to another. They shared what all black baseball players of their time did, the fight against systemic racism just to play the game.
2: Wow. I did not know that about the Cotton States League, man. Um, that's jarring. Uh, you know you know what my family is? My father is from Hot Springs, Arkansas. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this, I can't wait to... Until he hears this, because that will surely spark some memories. That's man. Everything is just such a tragedy, man. When you just think about, you know, how many people were denied and, um, you know, don't did, never got a chance to live out, not even their dreams, but just like their potential. You know, that's just deeply depressing.
1: Yeah, very well told, Stefan, and and deeply depressing. I mean, as we were talking about Aaron during the show today, I was wondering if he would have done things differently. Like if he had known that things would have turned out the way that they did, if he would have wanted to have a different kind of dream when he was a kid, one that wouldn't make him such a public figure. And then you hear a story like this and realize that there's tragedy or potential tragedy in any kind of potential pathway that you go down. Um, just being a black man living in the South in this period in American history, there's not any kind of way that you can go in life that can ensure that you would have an easier time. That's just the the, the truth of it.
0: There's a generation of of former black baseball players for whom Henry Aaron was the embodiment of of overcoming everything to make it. And, you know, Jim and Leander Tuggerson were just two, two athletes that didn't. And like you said, Joel, didn't even get really a chance to fulfill their potential.
2: Not to make too broad of a claim here, but there's been a lot of talk about America being on the cusp of fascism, whatever. And it's just really important to remember that, like, just the generation that preceded mine, like they grew up in a fascist America. So just something to think about.
1: That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at at com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine remember Almo beaty and thanks for listening
2: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper